Good morning. Thank you all for such a wonderful and well welcome, and a special thanks to Reverends uh, Mia McLean and Tara Gibbs for logistics, which were a little extra this time, hospitality, companionship. Thank you to everyone who came out yesterday to share with us in the teaching moment, those of you who shared with us online, and those of you who are online with us right now, as well as those of you in the house. Many, many thanks. Yesterday, we talked about the women's stories in Scripture that we do and do not hear taught and preached. Sometimes we don't hear stories of women because their pieces are scattered like breadcrumbs throughout the scriptures and it takes a major archeological excavation to gather all of those pieces together. And far too many preachers say, ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> well, I got time today. Let us pray. May the preached word draw you deeper into the written word and kindle in you the matchless love of the incarnate word. Amen. Before the mothers of the Black Lives Matter movement, there was RISPA. Before the mothers of the women and men and children swinging in the southern breeze as strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees, there was Rizpa. Before the mothers of the Ma'afa, the Atlantic African Holocaust, there was Rizpa. There was Rizpah, there was Rizpah standing over the decaying bodies of her disarticulated sons. But before she was there, she was somewhere else. Choir, you're going to have to pardon me. I like to turn and preach to the choir, but I'm not mobile this morning. <laughs> Rizpah was somewhere else, somewhere where she caught the eye of a king. A king who already had a queen. And now the text tells us nothing about how they met or what he saw in her, let alone what, if anything, she saw in him. Whether she wanted him or her circumstances made the choice for her. What we do know is that he could have made her a full wife and did not. He could have had as many wives and as many full wives as he chose, as he could afford, whether he was king or not. A Saul could have made Rizpah a full status wife like Queen Mother Ahinoam, the mother of his children, but Saul made Rizpah a low-status wife, meaning that her children would be legitimate, but neither she nor they would be entitled to anything after he died. No inheritance, nothing. 
She and others like her would be further reduced in translations that made her out to be a concubine, which is probably what your Bibles say, and they are wrong. A concubine is a glorified sex slave, not a legal wife. This weekend, we are asking who is translating the scriptures we have learned to receive as words from God, whose fingerprints and ideologies are on and in them, these sacred texts you read proclaim and have proclaimed to you. Rizpah was somebody. She is the only other woman mentioned by name in relationship to Saul. She was somebody. She was the daughter of Aya. Now, we don't know who Aya was. Were they mother or father or ancestor or even hometown? The grammar can mean all of those things. But we do know that Rizpah had people. She mattered to somebody, and those who told her story remembered that she was somebody from somewhere and preserved this one small fact of her identity. The status afforded her as the wife of a king was preceded by the dignity she already had as a child of God, as a person, as a woman, as somebody's child from somebody's hometown. Rizpah was somebody. But her personhood and bodily integrity and that of her precious babies would be discarded on the rubbish heap leavings of those bent on power and domination at any cost. She and her sons would pay that cost. Saul and his royal wife, his first wife, already have two daughters and two sons before Rizpah steps into the sacred story. A romantic reading of Rizpah's story might draw the conclusion that Saul was infatuated with her, captivated by her, pursued her because of her beauty and desirability. A critical reading would note that the writers and editors of the scriptures only bring women and children into the story when they have a tale to tell. A closer reading might find that Rizpah was not alone. Nathan's rebuke of David, the royal rapist, includes the reminder that God had given him his master's wives, and later David incarcerated an unknown number of low-status wives in what the text calls a living widowhood. We don't know if we should count Rizpah among that number or not. No matter how once desirable, royal women and their wombs represented a particular kind of threat when kings and their crowns toppled and fell. The mysteries of human reproduction were even more mysterious in the Iron Age. A new king had to be sure that there were no prospective baby kings in the wombs of royal women especially in the case when the new king was not the son of the old king. For it was always possible that someone would seize a royal woman, an infant, and proclaim the baby the true king, and then rule on behalf of and instead of the royal baby. 
Therefore, the royal women of a former king were often held in isolation so that no one could impregnate them and pass the baby off as a royal child. The children of a former king were lucky, boy children especially, if they were merely incarcerated, for all too often they were simply executed. So Rispa comes into the text as a royal widow. The text allows no space for her grief, no space for her to come to terms with her newfound vulnerability and uncertainty. David is technically the new king, but Saul's uncle is ruling through Ahinoam and Saul's baby boy. Earlier in the text, in the midst of this two-year struggle to get David properly on the throne and have everybody recognize him, is when we first hear the name Ritzpah written by the narrator, not spoken by anyone. She is written about as though she were an object. The way that her name comes up is that this man who is not royal blood, who is not the son of Saul, but is the uncle and the general, is being accused by the son whose throne he is usurping of having raped Rizpah. He doesn't deny it. So when we meet Rizpah, she is a widow a single mother and a survivor of sexual assault when David takes the only thing she has left, the only thing that gave her joy in her life, her children, her baby boys. David had her children lynched with all of Saul's surviving children and grandchildren. Perhaps you're asking at this point, dear God, how can a woman bear so much? Ask any black woman, Ask any black trans woman, ask any of my ancestral foremothers. I have only ever heard Rizpa preached by and as a black woman for good reason. We see our stories in her story. Yet the wisdom and witness of womanism is that black women's stories hold gospel for all who will sit and listen. And because black women hold no monopoly on suffering and sorrow, on surviving sexual violence or the state-sponsored execution of our children, we could also see Rizpa in the faces of native mothers with missing indigenous daughters left intentionally between jurisdictional cracks that allow non-natives to come onto reservations, abduct, rape, and kill native women without fear of prosecution from either side. Rizpa could be a trafficked Latina forced to pay for her passage with her body in addition to her every last penny. Her children lost, discarded, or trafficked by a coyote. Rizpa may very well have sisters and struggle and sorrow in this congregation. A text without a context is a pretext. So now with that very necessary context, let us turn to the text that is ours this morning. Though seemingly no amount of context can make sense of what happens next, 
And as we grapple with this Iron Age theology, we must decide for ourselves whether God is limited through the theological imaginations of those who are telling this God story. To put it bluntly and perhaps scandalously, is God in the text the true God, the whole God? Is it perhaps a glimpse of God distorted by the angle of perception? Or is there a God, a God who is perfect and whole from every angle and every viewpoint, who transcends the text and its theological poverty? In the text, as we heard read, there is a three-year famine that the author says is caused by the blood Saul spilled for which there had been no atonement. Saul is dead and gone, and the thirsty earth is paying the price for his crimes. Isn't that always the way? Our children will pay for the climate change we have failed to address. The man who shed blood, as David and every other monarch in the Afro-Asiatic world, had already received his earthly and eternal rewards. Yet earth and her creatures are dying of hunger and thirst because of his actions. Saul was not alive to answer for his crimes. And so we are to believe that God plagued the land and the people scratching a living on its surface with desperate hunger and thirst for three years in which crops and cattle failed, rivers, brooks, and breast milk dried up. The youngest and the oldest would have died of hunger and dehydration. This is the theology of the text. Is it yours? Are you able to read and accept the worldview of our scriptural ancestors without limiting God to it? All this while David and whoever else was living on royal rations would have gotten what their bodies needed before and beyond anyone else. Almost as an aside, we are told that God did not speak to David for all of that three years. No matter how much and how hard he prayed, some of us will find ourselves in the text at this point. Some of us cried out to God over the past four years, and it was as though the doors of heaven were shut, bolted, and locked, and no one was home. Then in the text we hear that when God did deign to speak, they said there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, the Gibeonites had an ancient treaty with Israel. Saul disregarded that treaty like some contemporary leaders we could name who disregarded the Paris Climate Accords and focused on his own, his own notion of who should be in the borders of the nation and who should be without the borders of the nation based on their ethnicity. Who could cross over the southern border? Who, whose skin was the right color? Well, that's our time. In their time, everybody was black and brown. But who was going to be permitted the privilege of living inside the community based on who their people were, who they were from, what their language was, what their religion was, what their culture was? And so Saul began to break the nation's promise and slaughter the Gibeonites. And now their survivors come at David's request because David is working out some theology of his own 
and they come to discuss reparations. David does not ask God what to do, so you know the story is going to turn left at this point. There's an opportunity for healing here, but David is a violent and bloodthirsty man. All he can see is all he knows, and so he draws on his own limited and bloody well of experience. The Gibeonites are angry and hurting, and David gives them what they want, seven of Saul's descendants, knowing they will put them to death, knowing more blood will be shed. Conveniently, it will be the blood of those who pose a, th a threat to David's throne. The boy ain't stupid. So David gives the Gibeonites the five sons of Mareph, Saul's firstborn and oldest daughter. He gives them Armoni and Mephibah, all also called Mephibosheth, the sons of Rizpah. But he uses royal executive privilege to spare the grandson of his beloved Jonathan. Black folk know something about unequal justice based on who you know and who you're related to. And not just black folk, poor folk, brown folk. Having given up on God, David's question to the Gibeonites is, what can I give you all that you might bless the land? He has come to the conclusion that the Gibeonites can get a prayer through. At some level, he understands that God pays particular attention to the prayers of those who have been wronged, but his theology is all messed up because he thinks that blood-satiated post-vengeance prayer is what it will take to end the drought and the famine. He kills all of those young men without getting blood on his hands directly, and then he leaves them out to rot like garbage. But none of God's children are garbage. None of God's black children are garbage. None of God's trans children are garbage. None of God's gay children are garbage. None of God's incarcerated children are garbage. Not even David is garbage, even when he does garbage things. Though catch me on another day and I might reject that last one. <laughs> Rizpah would stand beside the crucified bodies of her sons, and that is one way to understand the methodology of their murder, as another mother would stand by the crucified body of her son a thousand years later. Rizpah could do nothing about the rotting, degrading corpses of her children, but she could keep them from being pecked at and nibbled at and torn apart by the wild animals who were also starving in the famine. There would be no fruit for the crows to pluck, but there would be fruit for the rain to gather, for the wind to suck, for the sun to rot, for the tree to drop. There was a strange and bitter crop. The rain came, but it was not enough to heal the land. For all that was wrong with David on his worst days, he had it in him to repent, perhaps his only redeeming characteristic. But David wasn't in the mood for repentance. He didn't reckon that he had done anything wrong. But he lived in a house with a woman who, like Rizpah, had had her body violated by him. A woman who had had to bury her firstborn. And in my sanctified imagination, I hear Bathsheba telling David, nothing you do is going to go right until you do right by that woman. You see, the text says that David was told about Rizpah, and it doesn't tell us who told. 
After that conversation, David has the boys laid to rest with all of the other men. And then and only then does God heal the land. So what is God's word to us through Rizpah? Privilege and power will not place your prayers any closer to God's ears than the tears of a mother robbed of her children. Rizpah's gospel is that God is with the weak and the vulnerable. And to be vulnerable in this not quite post-Trumpian world is to live on the knife's edge between life and death. It is to see our precious trans children sacrificed for the bigotry of others. It is to be told repeatedly in word and deed that black lives do not matter as the life is choked out of us, as we are shot in the back, as we are dragged by our hair out of our cars because our paralyzed legs will not comply with the unreasonable demands of racist police. Some of you may be asking, where is God in Rizpah's story? God was right there with Rizpah weeping a mother's tears. God was right there with her sons exhaling their last tortured breaths on crosses not of their own making. God was with the hungry and thirsty earth and her desperate and dying creatures. God was with the Gibeonites in their righteous rage and grief. God was even with David, although perhaps not in the way the authors would have us think. Wherever you look, God is there. Wherever you see yourself in the story, God is there. Present, accompanying, never abandoning us to our sorrow and grief and the worst the world can do or the worst that we do. Rizpah's gospel asks us to decide whether we will continue to pursue eye-for-an-eye eye politics or seek the face of God for a new paradigm. Rizpah's gospel calls us to stand with women and others sexually exploited by powerful men, to stand with young men sacrificed on the altars of injustice, and to stand with the earth that hungers and thirsts due to famines, droughts brought about by human greed and callous indifference. Church, I looked for the voice of Rizpah. I looked and I looked and I happened upon Psalm 58. And if you will allow me, when I read it, hear Rizpah's voice, hear Rizpah talking to David. Truly, do you speak what is right, you mighty? Do you judge the children of earth rightly? Indeed, in your heart you work iniquity. Your hands spread violence across the land. The wicked wander from the womb. They err from their birth, speaking lies. Venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that closes its ears so it does not hear the voice of charmers or the spell speaking of the wise. God smashed the teeth in their mouths. Shatter the fangs of the young lions, dread God. Let them wash away like water that wanders off. Let her arrows fly that they be cut down like a snail that melts as it moves, like the stillbirth of a woman that never sees the sun before thorns know what it is to be a bramble, whether green or kindled. Let God sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when they see vengeance done. They will bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. Then shall the woman born say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Truly, there are divine judgments on earth. The gospel of Rispa is a judgment on theologies that equate favor with wealth and might. 
It is a truth-telling gospel. It tells the truth that sometimes the faithful will die unjustly while the unrighteous live on. It tells the hard truth that not everyone will receive justice in this world. And when read with Revelation 6, Rizba's gospel tells the story of the martyr whose blood cries out from under the very altars of God before her throne from whence her justice will be sure and true. Whether Rizpah's gospel is good news for you depends on where and with whom you stand. Where do you stand, church? Where do you stand when the victims of sexual violence are in the church and so are the perpetrators? Where do you stand when the justice system works for you but not for your neighbor and her sons? Where do you stand? Do you stand with the legally lynched and the corruptly crucified? Where do you stand when some folk are declared disposable because of what side of the man-made border imposed on stolen land they come from? Where do you stand when women are being forced into Iron Age reproductive, uh, reproductive slavery like Hagar and Bill? and Zilpa denied the right to make their own choices about their own reproductive health. Where do you stand, church? Where do you stand when folk are calling a lie the truth and a truth a lie? Where do you stand? I know where Jesus would stand. He stood with the women with bad sexual reputations, the women who were used by men and then left with nothing but the label whore for their trouble. He stood against a crooked and a corrupt government and didn't care what it would cost him. He stood with the dying and the dead. He stood in so much solidarity that he died with the dying and died himself. And in his dying, he destroyed death and took away its power. A petty kings and would-be kings might say death, but Jesus says life. He cried out life from the grave. And when he came back again to stand with the living and the dying, Jesus chose a woman very much like Rizpah to be the first preacher of his gospel and the apostle to the apostles. Jesus stands with us in life and in death, his and ours, as Rizpah stood with her sons in their bloody, vicious deaths. Where do you stand, church? Don't tell me, show me. Show me your fruit, good fruit, bad fruit strange fruit. Amen.